Our reading for today is from John 19, 28-37, and Psalm 34, 19-22. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with his spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right. Thank you, Stephanie. Good morning, Arcadia. Good to see you all here this morning. If you're new, my name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors here. We've been going through the Gospel of John, and we are uh, obviously getting toward uh, the end of it. A couple things before we get started. Uh, First of all, be praying for uh, Tyler James this morning. He is preaching up in Flagstaff, and uh, we like the the idea that other congregations like our pastors to come and and preach to them, so uh, be praying for him. And then uh, the other thing is, um, if you were wondering whether or not we'd mention anything about this, I wanted you to know that during our uh, Sunday morning prayer time this morning at 8.30, we specifically uh, focused on what's going on uh, in Ukraine, and we were praying uh, for that. Uh, I will tell you that just personally, um, it's it's just, it's, um, I don't know how to describe it because I do remember very distinctly when I was nine years old getting up and one morning and walking into the kitchen and my parents were very upset and and very somber and uh, seeing on the front page of the Arizona Republic uh, that the Soviet Union had done something very similar in Czechoslovakia and and it was uh, disturbing and and difficult and uh, um, it just seems like there really is nothing new under the sun and so we need to keep praying. We need to just keep praying for that. So uh, let me pray now and then we'll get into our text today in John chapter 19. Uh, You just need to be, if you have your Bibles, you just need to be in John chapter 19 today. So Father, again, we we lift up to you uh, the chaos that seems to be uh, so prevalent and ever-present underneath this veneer of goodness that we humans try to put uh, over everything in this world. Um, Remind us of your sovereignty and remind us that even in... uh, difficult, challenging, uncharted, 
chaotic times like this. I've heard all of those adjectives used so far for what's happening remind us that uh, even you, and because it's you, can cause all things to work together for good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And that we're reminded by Paul also in Ephesians that you can do way more than we would ever imagine, expect, or hope for. And so, God, we place our trust in, in you to be able to do that. Uh, Father, we are the church. We are your faith community. And so this is a time when we need to be a faith community. We need to pray. We need to point to you. And we need to recognize your sovereignty. So help us to do that. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So what we've witnessed recently in our text is the arrest, the trial, so to speak, the sentencing, and the crucifixion of Jesus. And now today, Jesus in his humanity dies. And, and I want us to remember that as we look at this, again, it's a tough text. It was tough last week. It's going to be tough again today. We need to remember, though, that this was Jesus' mission and purpose all along. He went to the cross specifically so that you and I, who have placed our faith and trust in him, who know him, who believe in him, could have life ever everlasting. And there's two sections here that we're going to look at today in, in the text. There's, there's kind of a smaller section, three verses, and then there's that bigger one uh, that we'll end with. So the smaller one to begin with, let me, let me reread those uh, few verses, 28 uh, through 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on, on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So he's, John says, after this. Well, after what? Well, again, this is after Jesus' arrest and trial and sentencing, that whole debacle that we looked at last week, and now the process of crucifying Jesus, and he's hanging on the cross, and uh, between the time they crucified him and he hangs on the cross is maybe three hours. It's a very short crucifixion by crucifixion standards. And, and we need to understand the picture we now have. Jesus has unerringly and purposefully carried out his mission. And that is to go to the cross to be the final, the last, perfect, pure sacrifice. He is that, that lamb, that the only lamb that could ever permanently satisfy uh, God and his need for payment. Of, of sin. And so now Jesus is very near death uh, as we start this short little paragraph. And when you put all four gospel accounts together, we, we see that there are actually seven things that Jesus said on the cross. And what John records here are the fifth and sixth cross sayings of Jesus. He says, I thirst, and it is finished. And Jesus Saying that he's thirsty calls to mind Psalm 69.11, where King David says of his enemies, they put gall in my food and they gave me vinegar to drink. Now, just a, a comment about the sour wine, the vinegar wine that was there. Um, we know in the other Gospels that Jesus was offered some sort of a wine concoction on his way to the crucifixion, and he refused it. That was a different mixture. It was, it was more akin to a narcotic to try to... Uh, calm the, the, the person down and to maybe make him uh, not feel as much pain, to also to help prolong the crucifixion. This is a different mixture. This is something that actually was there for 
uh, the people on the cross who got thirsty. And, and they would get very thirsty because it was very hard physical work to stay alive on a cross. We talked last week about having to push up to get breath and all that. It was, it was tremendous uh, physical exertion. And so the vinegar, this wine vinegar, was there, actually there to help prolong the process. It, it was not offered out of compassion to the person on the cross, but rather uh, it was offered out of a desire to prolong the torture so that there would be more to watch. Uh, but Jesus was done at this point because he then says, and some people say that he asked for the wine specifically to help clear his throat so that he could say boldly and loudly, it is finished. It is finished. Now, if you've been at Redemption Arcadia for even just three months, you probably know that my opinion is that it is finished is the most wonderful and spectacular of his seven statements on the cross. That's just my opinion. I'm not making a theological, factual statement there. It's just my opinion. The words here, it is finished, in the first century Mediterranean vernacular and culture had, had significant meanings, uh, all of them similar, but all of them different in their different contexts. And the, the Greek word is tetelestai. And, and, and so they would say, for instance, tetelestai, nothing further is needed to accomplish what you're trying to accomplish. That would be one way that they would use it. They would say, tetelestai, I have fulfilled my duty and my obligation in this situation, tetelestai. Sometimes people would cry tetelestai as a sign of victory. Victory has been won, uh, it's over, nothing else needs to happen. And then merchants in the first century Mediterranean world would actually mark a bill or a debt. Once it had been paid in full, they would mark it tetelestai. It's been your, your debt has been paid. Every, there's nothing else that you need to pay, nothing else uh, that you need to do. And so what Jesus is declaring on the cross for us to live in and to embrace, what he's declaring here is that all of our religious efforts and moral pieties that frankly fall so desperately short of ever satisfying God, they've all been accomplished and fulfilled for us in Jesus on the cross. That's the good news. And we merely accept the gift. If we're willing to accept the gift, we just accept the gift. And that's why I believe it's the most wonderful and spectacular saying. Uh, there's a pastor in one of the other uh, uh, redemption congregations. And um, he uh, and his wife send their two children to a, a private school. And it's a very difficult financial burden on them to be able to do this. They, they need to do this for their kids uh, for a particular reason. And uh, he was talking about how this last school year, when he went in, to pay the tuition, he walked in and said, I'm here to pay the tuition. Um, he was told that his tuition for that year had been paid in full by somebody else. It was a wonderful, he has no idea who it was, but it was, a, it was really a wonderful gesture, very helpful to him. But he said, and in, in the context of this passage right here and in the context of Tetelestai, he said, how stupid, how ignorant, how ridiculous would it be for me to say, well, can I go ahead and just pay you more money even though my debt has been paid in full? Is it okay if I just, if I just pay something extra, if I do something extra? Because I just, I, man, I really want to make sure. I got to do my part. No, Jesus has done it all. It is finished, he says. He's done it all. And then finally in verse 30, John says that Jesus bowed his head and gave up his spirit. 
The language here is crystal clear, and again, something that you and I should hold in awe about Jesus. No one took Jesus' life from him. Rather, he voluntarily gave it up as a payment for our sin, for our redemption. He gave it up. He went of his own accord. Nobody forced him into this. All right, this last paragraph, 31 through 37. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear or a sword, and at once there came out blood and water. He who sought has borne witness, his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says they will look on him whom they have pierced. So there's just a bunch of things here to unpack and to discuss and to clarify. So I'm just going to go through them one at a time. The day of preparation. So their Sabbath is sad. The Jews' Sabbath is Saturday, uh, and so the day of preparation for the Sabbath is Friday, and that's the day that Jesus was crucified, and then He rose on Sunday. So that's the three days. Now, on on the Sabbath, if you're Jewish, there are many things that you're restricted from doing, both by Mosaic law and through the rabbinical interpretations of the Mosaic of the Mosaic law. I hope we'll still be able to sing after the sermon. (laughs) Anyway, uh, what was I saying? Something about Sabbath, right? Oh, the Mosaic Law. They had the Mosaic Law on the Sabbath, but then the rabbis over the years would come in and add their interpretation as to what you could and could not do on the Sabbath. And so, if you know anything about... Nordstrom's used to talk about this. You know, if if you... if you put a, anything in writing, sort of a, a restriction on employees, if you put anything in writing, pretty soon they come and say, well, can you clarify this? And then you've got to put more laws down. And then, well, you've got to clarify those other laws. And the next thing you know, you have three binders worth of restrictions, and it's impossible to figure out. Well, this is what had been happening also to the Jewish law. So it was very intricate, the Mosaic law. It was very intricate because you had all these interpretations of what you could and couldn't do. So this made preparing for the Sabbath quite an ordeal. The busiest day of the week for you was was Friday. And some of that prep was to try to get around the professional religious person's interpretation of the Mosaic Lodge. You know how human beings are. We're still trying to get around it. And then you have to have more interpretations, right? Ah, we didn't think of that. We need another memo, okay? For instance, here's an example. Over the years, interpreters of this commandment, keep the Sabbath holy, decided that you could walk or travel no more than one half a mile from your home on the Sabbath. So if you wanted to travel on the Sabbath further than a half a mile from your home, which people would want to travel, you would go out on the day of prep and assemble and place every half mile enough stuff to constitute what a home might be. Ridiculous, right? For instance, a little bit of food was enough to, uh, to constitute an acceptable home. 
So if you needed to go three miles on the Sabbath, you would go out and assemble five of these little places where there's food every half a mile, and then you could get to your final destination three miles, and, you, and you'd be fine. That's a, golly, that's a lot. Of, that's a lot of work. Can I just say, thank God for grace? Can I get an amen? <laughs> you know? And then, of course, you had to do all of your shopping and food prep for the next day, the Sabbath, on Friday as well. You also had to do all your cleaning, all your finagling. Let me tell you something. The day of prep was a lot of work. It's a lot of work to be pious. It's a lot of work to virtue signal. So again, remember, Jesus finished all of this for us. He fulfilled the law. He was perfect. He is the Lamb. Then there's the significance of the coming Sabbath, this particular Sabbath, and the Jews' hypocrisy and irony in being so worried about it. So we just discussed this day of preparation, which also helps us to understand that the Sabbath is a significant day, a day to be honored, a day of worship and rest. And this particular Sabbath held even more significance because it was the Sabbath during the week of the Passover celebration. So remember, the Last Supper was their Passover meal. So this makes this Sabbath an even bigger deal than the other Sabbaths. And because the Sabbath was the next day, part of their law, you can find this in the book of Deuteronomy, part of their law was there could be no corpses left out on the Sabbath. This would be an affront to Jewish religious scruples and piety. They would say that the corpse is unclean. We can't have that out here. And what would happen was the Romans would ordinarily leave the dead on their crosses until they rotted away or until the animals and birds dragged them off. Now, why would they do that? We talked about it last week. It was a discouragement to anybody who passed by. Don't do this or you'll end up on, don't do what he did, don't do what she did or you'll end up on the cross. But the Romans gave in on this for the Jews. Yet for the Jews, I just see nothing but hypocrisy there. The trial was a farce. The execution was a travesty of justice, both Jewish and Roman justice. And these very religious and pious Jews were the ones that perpetrated it all. And now they're complaining about corpses being laid, left out on the Sabbath. Okay. Uh, years ago, I read, uh, if most of you know I love reading true crime, I read um, Bill Bonanno's 1999 book, Bound by Honor. Anybody else in here read a Bonanno book? You all know the Bonanno family? Some of you are like, yeah, I think I know who that is. Okay, so let me explain a little bit. Uh, uh, Bill Bonanno was Joe Bonanno's son. Joe Bonanno was the head of the five mafia families for years, 30s, 40s, 50s in New York. Okay, And Joe Bonanno is supposedly, it's alleged that Joe, Joe Bonanno is the sketch of the Vito Corleone character in The Godfather. See, I got The Godfather in a sermon. <laughs> you know. Anyway. So that makes Bill Bonanno, Joe's son, uh, Michael Corleone, or Al Pacino. So some of you are making connections now. Okay. Now, Bill Bonanno is supposedly, by his own confession in his book, Bound by Honor, uh, the only mafia don who ever survived retirement, although three different times attempts were made on his life, and he survived them all, and he recounts them in the book. And the book details many of his crimes, you know, the racketeering, the real estate fraud, even... Here you go, even his supposed involvement in the Kennedy assassination. That was an interesting chapter. I have no idea if it's true, but he seems to think it was true. 
But he also, in this book, he details the affair that he had with his mistress, uh, who is a server uh, in a Tucson uh, cafe. So he retired to Tucson. So if you know the Godfather story, they go to Reno. I think Reno was more interesting in the movie than Tucson. I think that's why they portrayed it that way. But anyway, Bill Bonanno actually went to Tucson to retire, and he took up with this server in a, in a Tucson cafe. Um, and so there was this chapter in the book that describes when his mistress came to him and said, I'm pregnant. And Bonanno sprang into action. He insisted that he would buy her a house and give her a monthly stipend so that she could raise the child. And she, uh, so that she could raise the child. And she said, no, actually, I'm going to have an abortion. I'm, I don't want to have the child. The rest of the chapter was Bonanno, this former head of the mafia, in a shroud of indignant piety going off on how immoral abortion is and how the Catholic Church would never stand for such a thing and how offended he was that she was going to have an abortion. Isn't that something? There's a little bit of false Jewish piety in Bill Bonanno. But here's what I want you to really hear and realize. There's a little bit of Bill Bonanno in all of us. We're all hypocrites. And by the way, you don't have to be a Christian to be a hypocrite. Everyone's a hypocrite. This is the morality by which I live my life until it's no longer convenient or expeditious to do so, and then I change my morality to include how I'm behaving now. Everybody does it. We're all hypocrites. By the way, Jesus died for hypocrisy too. Isn't that something? Even hypocrisy is not the unforgivable sin. But that's why we need Jesus. We're all flawed. We're all sinful. We're all hypocrites. We've all got a little bit of Bill Bonanno in us. Or Bill could say, there's a bunch of you and me. He could say that too. Then there's the breaking of the legs. Remember we talked last week about how the cross had a little shelf for the feet so that the one being crucified could push up and catch their breath because mostly how you died was through asphyxiation. And not often, but occasionally, and this is one of those times because of the Sabbath, they would speed up the crucifixion, and they did that by breaking the legs so that you could no longer push up to get breath. Once you broke somebody's legs on the cross, within 15 minutes, they, they were dead. But because they knew Jesus was already dead, these Roman executioners were professionals at this. They knew Jesus was already dead. They did not have to break his legs. And we see in verse 36 that Jesus' bones were not broken that fulfilled more Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah. Psalm 34, David writes, Many are the afflictions of the righteous one, but the Lord delivers him out of them. The Lord keeps all of his bones. Not one of them is broken. But even though they knew Jesus was dead, they also knew how to make sure, and that's what the piercing is about. So the piercing of the side with the sword. Water and blood comes out. This confirms that he's dead. Now from what I read... I'm not, I'm not a doctor or, or, or a medical person, but what I read is that if you stab a person who's upright, as Jesus was on the cross, if only blood comes out when you stab him, then, then the person may still be alive. But, but stabbing him the way they did, what they did was he, they thrust it far enough, the Roman executioners would thrust it far enough to puncture the lungs. And because of what happens to you uh, on crucifixion, your lungs would build water and other... 
uh, fluid around the lung sacs during crucifixion, so they punctured that, and it was a white, watery substance that would come out. It was their way of knowing for sure that somebody on the cross was dead. They knew he was dead, but they also made sure this was important. And John, the author, even talks about this. He said, I saw this. This is confirmation of what I saw. My testimony is true. This is so that we might believe that Jesus went to the, to the tomb dead. We need to understand that. And of course, this is also a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah. There there are a few places in the Old Testament where this is spoken of, but most people point to Zechariah 12, verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. Jesus, of course, was the only begotten son of God. And then there's the true emphasis, or the emphasis on true testimony that John speaks of and why this can lead to somebody believing. The witness of John that John is speaking of, of course, is, here is him. He's the author. And notice his statement is also consistent with his purpose statement in writing the gospel. We talked about that during the first week of this series, like 17 years ago when we started the book of John. But it's found in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Jesus did many other signs and miracles in the presence of his disciples, too many to write down here. But these are written, these I have specifically selected and testified to, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. See, John understands how important this detail of the blood and water is because he knew that there would be people who would try to explain away the resurrection of Jesus, which is coming. That's what we're going to start looking at in the coming weeks. And let me tell you something. People really have tried to explain away the resurrection. Have you heard any of the, what you might call the alternative theories of the resurrection? Any, any of you? Well, you're going to hear some now because I have the mic and I want to tell you about them. Okay, so here we go. The first one is what's known as the swoon theory. Anybody heard of the swoon theory? Okay, this is not what you do uh, when you see Brad Pitt, okay? We're not talking about that. So here's what the swoon theory says, okay? Jesus never really died on the cross. He just swooned. Another word for it, he went into a coma of sorts. He was unconscious in a, in a coma, state of coma, and he just, he only, he only appeared dead. And when I, when I see people, he only appeared dead. I mean, there's a movie that just comes right to my mind, you know. Princess Bride, you know, Billy Crystal. He's only mostly dead, but partly alive, okay. So Billy Crystal's running around going, ah, swoon, you know. That's not what happened. But they say that he was in a coma, and then they put him in the tomb. In the tomb, he comes out of the coma, and injured and beaten as he was from the flogging and the sword thrust in his side, he, by himself, Jesus, by himself, moved this 4,000-pound stone covering the tomb and just went merrily on his way. And if that's true, we need to understand, if that's true, every Roman soldier who was there had to be executed because that's what happens to Roman soldiers when you lose a prison. You take the prisoner's place and they execute you. And there's no record anywhere of that happening. Also, this assumes that the Romans, who are experts in, in execution and knowing when people are dead, they missed it with Jesus somehow. So that's one theory. Here's the next one, the stolen body theory. 
This theory says that the disciples stole Jesus' body so that they could then proclaim that Jesus had risen. His bones are somewhere that nobody's ever been able to find. Uh, it's interesting, again, I was, I was alive for the uh, Watergate scandal, Nixon's Watergate scandal, and it's amazing how quickly those people cracked under pressure, right? It's just a few months, and the next thing you know, everybody's, everybody's talking, okay? But we're supposed to believe that more than 500 witnesses to Jesus' resurrection kept this secret. Even under the threat of torture and execution, they still kept this secret. Furthermore, we read in the Gospels that all the disciples fled in fear. But then, apparently, what we don't know about is the fact that they all got together and put together this life-risking project of stealing a body from a tomb that was guarded by Roman soldiers. So that's the stolen body theory. I guess you can figure out where I land on that theory. Then there's the wrong tomb theory. This theory claims that everyone from Mary, Jesus' mother, to Peter and John and all the rest, they went to the wrong tomb, a tomb that happened to be empty. I, I don't even know. Supposedly, serious people have tried to argue this. And then this one, can you see how they just keep getting more and more? Well, anyway. Here you go. There's the hallucination theory. No one really saw Jesus after he died. They all just had the exact same hallucination. Okay? Now that theory obviously materialized in the 60s. <laughs> Probably somewhere in San Francisco during the summer of love. I'm sorry to be so flip about this, but I have my own theory, by the way. It's the I just don't want to believe it theory. Just be intellectually honest and say I don't believe it. Don't make up something that is ridiculous. And it's funny, sometimes people will say to me, Frank, you should take these people more seriously. They have serious objections. No, they don't. Not here. Maybe they have other objections about other things, and I'm willing to engage those. These are not serious objections, in my opinion. You can try and take it down somewhere else, but not here. This stuff's strange credulity. And I think one of the challenges here is that this brings up what I would call a pure C.S. Lewis moment. This is that moment that C.S. Lewis talks about when he says, you have a decision to make. And not deciding is a decision, but you have a decision to make. Is Jesus a liar? Is Jesus a lunatic? Or is Jesus Lord? And he can only be one of those. And you have to decide. And if you say, oh, I'm not going to decide, you've decided. You've decided. Christian faith is either true or it's not. And, and really, the main question about the Christian faith is this. Is Jesus raised? When people come and say, I, I don't, I don't want to live under this portion of the Bible. I don't like this part of the Bible. This part disturbs me. This part is unfair. This part is hard. The question is, is Jesus raised? Well, yes. Well, then we have to follow He's the author of this book. He's the creator of everything. So that's the main question. Is Jesus raised? Every question about our unbelief, our desire not to follow, every one of those ultimately comes down to this question. Is Jesus raised? That's the question that matters. And he is. And he is raised. 
And then the question is, are we living in light of that? His word is true. His spirit resides in us. And we have eternity to look forward to. Uh, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, which we're now going through on Wednesday nights, but not this Wednesday night because it's uh, the Ash Wednesday service, but we're going through 1 Corinthians uh, right now on Wednesday nights. He states it unequivocally in 1 Corinthians 15. If Jesus isn't raised, then we Christians are by far the most to be pitied people in the world. But Jesus is raised, and therefore those who follow Jesus are not to be pitied, but rather we are called to thanksgiving, joy, and discipleship. And as we head into communion and reflection, I want you to just noodle on this. I really believe that every part of this message today comes down to this thing that I want you to consider as we move into reflection. The Romans designed crucifixion to discourage sin, wrongdoing, and to dissuade people from transgression. But Jesus went to the cross and used the cross to pay the debt of sin. That, that's an amazing reversal that only the Son of God could do. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, I... I I cannot help but think again uh, this morning of, of what Paul writes in, in Philippians chapter 1, where he's discussing his potential fate in prison. Am I going to die? Am I going to be released? And he says, you know, if I die, that's actually pretty good because I get to be with Jesus. But then he states unequivocally, but I know that that's not what's going to happen because it's God's will for me to remain here and do my ministry. That is God's will for us as well as a church. And so I pray that we would be a church that says it would be better to be with you. But we have work to do here. We have a ministry. We're called to be light and salt in this world. And so, Father, fill us with your spirit. Give us the giftings that we need to be your, your church. And help us to go on mission for you. Help us to be a people who loves you even in the midst of chaos and darkness and wickedness. Help us to be that light. I pray that we would be. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are going to sing a couple more songs. Did I get that right, a couple? Okay, good, all right. We're sort of in a pattern now, too, after. That's good. So we're going to sing a couple more songs, and we're going to take communion as well. Uh, if you uh, confess Christ as your Lord and Savior, uh, you come out at some point during this first song, you come out into the middle aisle, come down here and grab one of the communion kits, if our communion servers would please come forward now uh, for us. Um, during that time, if you also need prayer or have questions, we'll have elders or deacons or staff members standing in the wings, and you can talk with them, pray with them, talk to them. It's no problem. They'll be there after the service as well if you want to wait until after the service. But this coming to the Lord's table is, a, is something that we do every week, not because it's a routine, but because it's, it's a sacrament and it's important. It's a 
liturgical element of our service that reminds us of the sacrifice of Jesus and the life that we have in Him. That He went to the cross to pay the debt for our sin because that's what we needed, but we also get to come forward and, and take of, of the, the bread, which He said is His body, and of the juice or the wine, which He said is the blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. We get to take that and we get to be with Him and we get to celebrate that we have salvation in Him. So that's what we're going to do right now as we sing and as we come forward. I've got one response, I've got just one move, with my arms stretched wide, I will
Come on, my soul, don't you get shy on me. Lift up your song. You've got a lion inside of those lungs. Get up and praise the Lord. Let's sing that again. Come on, my soul, don't you get shy on me. Lift up your song. You've got a lion inside of those lungs. Get up and praise the Lord. Come on, my soul, don't you get shy on me. Lift up your song. You've got a lion inside of those lungs. Get up and praise the
Thank you for worshiping with us. I'll read so that I don't forget the words here. Um, what we just heard again was the gospel. Um, and I just wanted to read this over us as we go into the week. Uh, and if you're coming in uh, with loss or with struggle, uh, pain, which we all have, um, this is what I go to again and again. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction, light and momentary affliction compared to eternity. This light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory, not even worth comparing, beyond all comparison. As we look to not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. I love you guys. Thanks for worshiping with us. Go and live all of life off of Jesus. <laughs>